0: Coming up on today's show, the future of work, well, it's going to be different, and it might be different for everybody. We'll also get some insight into Gifts of Hope, a fundraiser taking place in support of the Alberta Council of Women's Shelters next week, and baby boomers are starting to worry about their financial futures heading into retirement. The pandemic is not making it easier. Neither is the rising inflation in our country. We're starting to see new... um Framework set up in different businesses. You know, if you're if you've worked an office job for a long time, you know um, the pandemic has really changed things. A lot of pe- you weren't allowed to go to the office for a while. A lot of people work from home. Uh, some people had you know one day in, one day out. All kinds of different things have been set up. But this isn't brand new. We've had these work from home arrangements uh, in some cases on a much smaller scale, going back you know decades now. Um, but it really ramped up during the pandemic. And I think it sort of set the tone for the way things are going to be in the future. It's not going away. Um, So what do we need to know about how to make this work and not have it turn into an absolute disaster? Because as I say, it's been around before. We can learn from previous experience. Joining us to talk about that is Alina Mitchell, an Associate Professor and Chair of Information Management and Business Analytics at Drake University. Alina, thanks so much for your time this morning. appreciate you joining us.
1: Uh, good morning, Shay. Thanks for having me
0: on. Yeah, so when we talk about this remote working arrangement, uh, you know, it's not—it's brand new to a lot of people, but it's not brand new, right? We've been actually doing this since what, back in the '80s, kind of a thing, right?
1: Yeah, it's—it's it's been a long time, um, and I—but I would say there's definitely been, you know, sort of an unprecedented adoption yeah. of this this way of work um, because of the pandemic.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The pandemic has completely made it you know, commonplace and, and pretty much the way of the world right now. So when we take a look at this and, and where we are, is that just a paradigm shift, do you think, on a massive scale in so many different people all of a sudden realizing, okay, wait a minute, uh, maybe the way we've been doing things isn't the only way to do things, and now they're seeing a new approach that seems to be working, in some cases at least?
1: Yeah, it's been really interesting to kind of observe. I would say pre-pandemic, I would talk you know, anecdotally to managers, and they would have sort of a resistance to employees working from home and sort of a fear that, you know, nothing would get done and and we would never lose all our great ideas. Um, And I think that what's happened over the course of this time is people have seen, like, we can still be productive in this way.
0: Yeah, I mean, definitely. We've learned that some people actually report being more productive, right? There are some definite pluses that people are reporting to the work-from-home arrangement.
1: Yes, for sure. And, and some of our work we've seen, you know, absolutely, people are reporting more productivity. There's probably, you know, a harder separation of work home happening and people are working maybe even more than they would have before. But also, they're not spending any of that time in meetings or, or you know, moving from one place to another place. It's just a lot more just working.
0: But there are downsides, too. For some people, it's really tough. I mean, they, they really crave that yeah, I guess it's social interaction, which maybe shouldn't be the primary reason for going to a workplace. But there is that that element of being together, the team all being there. You can wander down the hall and have a chat. Um, there are some pluses to having people in the workplace too.
1: Yeah, I think it's really you know you have to be really intentional about the, the time that's happening face to face. You want to make sure that you know you have prioritized sort of that synchronous communication and connection. It's important for the culture. Um, it's important for the development of of calling work relationships and and creativity and brainstorming and all of that stuff, you know, the water cooler conversations, Mm -hmm. a lot of times those result in good ideas and and that's not happening.
0: So it seems like for a lot of people, you know, and I was reading about LinkedIn was talking about, um, you know, uh, one in eight jobs on that platform now mentions remote work in some capacity, many of them hybrid. So it looks like that's the way of the future going forward, at least in workplaces that can accommodate it. But it looks like a hybrid model, right? Where you're sort of doing some of both. Do you think that's fair?
1: Yeah, I certainly think that, you know, the exposure to remote work over the course of the pandemic, you know, love it or hate it, people saw what they could do with it and what could be done. And so I think moving forward, there are the benefits that, you know, organizations, employees, everyone's going to want to continue to take advantage of. So a hybrid solution, you know, can allow for that flexibility, but also the continued face-to-face um, interactions. So it could be a a good move towards the future. And maybe it would have always happened, but the pandemic certainly pushed us there. Sure.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. I I think, you know, we're starting to see some of the reasons why eventually it would have happened. But like you say, it was just accelerated exponentially. Um, what, what, What have we learned about how to make sure that it's successful? What do we need to avoid in setting up a work from home or a hybrid situation? I mean, what are some of the risks that businesses and employees can encounter?
1: Yeah, communication is really important. You want to make sure that, you know, whatever the policies are going to be, that the communication and the messaging is going out the same to people, whether they're at home or whether they're in the office, and that's the same. The other thing that you have to be really careful about is what we call fault lines. Sometimes you'll have fault lines established based on, you know, this group of people is in the office and this group is is working remotely. And so you want to make sure that you're not sort of Creating subgroups or divisions among the different parties; um, those are both kind of important things.
0: Um, and in terms of opportunity, uh, you know, if you're an employer and you're thinking, okay, how am I going to make this work? Because we know it's tough to find employees in some cases right now. Um, what do they need to be aware of? What are employees looking for? Flexibility, I guess. Right? Yeah,
1: I think. Yeah, flexibility. I think the other things to think about there. You know, from the organizational perspective, there's a lot of value in the hybrid approach. You can. You can have a smaller office space and, and therefore less cost. That's one of the highest cost, highest yes. budget items is the office space. So you can have a smaller workspace, but you also have to think about, are you accommodating those remote work, work spaces as well? Are you paying for, you know, desktops and laptops mm-hmm. at home and Internet? And how are you how are you arranging that? Security also becomes incredibly important because if you have those devices outside of your office, it's much harder to make sure that they've been set up securely. Um or maybe multiple people are using them when they're not in the office space. Right. So that's another kind of organizational consideration.
0: You mentioned meetings. And I know for a lot of people who work in an office environment, meetings are sort of the bane of their existence and seem like a giant time waster. And, uh, and, um, uh, I've I've seen some instances where you can have more meetings on Zoom because people feel more driven to stay connected and that's how they do it. They have Zoom meetings or remote meetings. So where do you think meetings are going to fit into this? And that's something people need to be aware of, right? That's an important thing to a lot of people.
1: Yeah, I you know, good meeting planning is something that I really have so many things to say about Um, because so many people spend a a large chunk of their day in meetings, right? And that's the time that they're not productive. And I think that that's one of the, you know, key things that makes remote work more attractive is that maybe there's less meeting time. But also what's happening is everybody's being invited to every meeting. And yeah. because it's a Zoom meeting and you can just get on. And that's not what we need anyways. We want to make sure we're inviting the people who need to be, be there and we have a goal for why they're all brought together. Um, and so being really intentional about the meeting planning is really important.
0: Yeah, no doubt. Uh, we've all been in those meetings for sure. Um, Alina, thanks so much for your time this morning. Appreciate it very much.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for
0: having me on. You bet. That's Elena Mitchell, who is an associate professor and chair of information management and business analytics at Drake University. Some of your texts, um, you know, working remotely may keep people safer. This is from Jay, Uh, but it's ultimately detrimental for a business. When everyone is working remotely or there are very few people together at the office, you lose much of your ability to pool your associates' talents and skills in an effort to solve problems. It makes it much more difficult to do this remotely and destroys much of the employees' ability to be creative and build off each other's good ideas. And you're right, Jay, that's definitely a downside to this. All right, going to have a discussion here about something that uh, should be on your radar, an important event that's taking place in our province. Uh, It's the Gifts of Hope fundraiser. And um, it's basically in benefit of the Alberta Council of Women's Shelters, Uh, It's been running for, I think, seven years now, and it's grown into a gala. It raises funds and raises awareness about domestic violence and provides tools for women to help themselves and others in their spheres of influence. So let's get some details on how we got here and uh, what it's about and what you can expect at this year's Gift of Hope fundraiser. Let's uh, invite to join us Christy Levan, who is the Director of Public Relations and Community Engagement for the Alberta Council of Women's Shelters. Good morning, Christy. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Shay. And we also have Samra Zafar, who's the guest speaker at this year's Gifts of Hope. Um, uh, Samra, thank you so much for your time this morning. appreciate it.
2: Thank you very much. I'm really excited to be here.
0: Uh, Let's start with you, um, Christy. Let's just talk about uh, how this came about, how it got started, and the journey that it's been on over the last six, seven years.
3: Yeah, well, an amazing group of volunteers came to us about eight years ago. And said, you know, we really want to help. We, we love the work that ACWS does. We love the work that shelters do. And we want to let people know about it. What do you need? And we said, funding. <laughs> so um, they started, uh, they created together. It's a third-party event created by this group of amazing volunteers called Gifts of Hope. And it's an event designed for women and the women that they care about to learn more about uh, domestic violence and
0: support the work of the Alberta Council of Women's Shelters. Um, Alberta Council of Women's Shelters, for listeners who may not be familiar with that, it's it's a group that basically, I mean, it, they're, they're all over, they're in many different communities. Is this just sort of one central location where you, you sort of talk policy? Just give us some background on the Alberta Council of Women's Shelters.
3: Totally. Thanks for asking that. Yeah. ACWS is an almost 40 year old nonprofit organization in Alberta. And we started with the nine founding shelters uh, that w- existed in Alberta at that time, who realized that they would be stronger together if they got together and combined resources to train shelter members, to support survivors in shelter, and also would have a stronger voice with advocacy. And cut to today, we have 40 members throughout the province of Alberta. And our mission is to support those members, but also to work together with people in the community, like yourselves, like people who organize this fundraiser, to end domestic violence.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, Samra, um, you are uh, the author of a memoir which has become a national bestseller, um, very successful, basically telling your story. Um, First of all, just give us your background and uh, just tell us your story.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for asking, and uh, I have to say, I'm just so honored to be a part of this event because it is very close to my heart. I'm a survivor myself. I came to Canada as a child bride in an arranged marriage. Uh, I was 16 when I was pushed into marriage with a stranger who was 10 years older than me, and I'd never met him before. And I arrived in Canada as his teen bride and became a teenage mom because I had no uh, no clue about my rights, about my reproductive rights, or anything. And um, eventually. Uh, was in a, in a locked trapped in that marriage uh, and uh, suffered a lot of abuse, emotional, physical. Uh, financial over the course of over a decade. And it took me a very long time in many hard-fought battles over those 10 years to find a way to uh, step into my education and learn about my rights uh, in this country as a Canadian, as a woman, as a human being, and eventually break free from that marriage and build a new life for myself and my daughters. And that's when I started sharing my story because I knew that my story is not just my story. Sadly, it is the story of millions and millions of uh, women and girls around the world, including here in our amazing country
0: and i wanted to make a difference yes amra tell me more about that because um you know there are unfortunately many many people who go through experiences similar to yours who it's something that they it's not easy to talk about it's very difficult to talk about what um what pushed you to the point where you thought you know what i can help some people and i'm going to step out and i'm going to you know tell my story and i'm going to share it with others It, it must have been a difficult decision to make it was
2: difficult, but it was also very crystal clear to me. Um, when I left my marriage, I was in my second year of undergrad. I was 20 year, 28 years old, and I was a mother of two girls uh, who were 10 and 5 at the time. It was a very difficult time. I was at at any point working multiple jobs to make ends meet and going to school full-time, dealing with a ton of cultural backlash because no one in my family had ever walked away from, mar- from marriage before. So it was a very difficult time, but eventually when I graduated university I, and I received a lot of academic and career success at that point uh, i just felt this burning passion fire Fury uh, inside me that this is in, this isn't just my story. I had I'd learned enough through counseling and reading that how prevalent domestic abuse is, how many victims and survivors there are. It's not just like survivors, you know, just leave the marriage and they're fine. Like they struggle with a host of uh, trauma and yeah. uh, managing that trauma for the rest of their lives. And I, even personally, I'm still on that journey, and I think I always will be because you don't move on from trauma; you move on with it, and uh, you learn to live a good life, but you're still dealing with it so I um, I just I just knew that I had to do something I couldn't stay silent uh, uh, there is no honor in silence and silence is an abusers best friend uh, because silence only helps the oppressor and never the oppressed so I just felt this burning fire in me to do something about it and I knew that the first thing I could do is tell my story um, and hopefully it might give hope to some people out there. Maybe there might be someone in the audience or someone in uh, some reader out there who might he- need to hear what I have to say. And I started on a very small scale, just small events and community things here in Toronto. And over the years it grew and eventually I got a book deal and um, and then the book came out. And uh, But every day I do this work, I feel like there's just so much more to do um, and uh, one day I hope we live in a world where this work is not needed but right now it
3: definitely is. More yeah than most,
0: most certainly is. Um, we also have with us this morning we have Rachel Rogers who is the creator of Gifts for Hope. Rachel uh, thank you glad you could join us this morning. Uh,
4: thank you so much for having me Shay. I appreciate this opportunity to uh, you know uh, share what we're doing yeah. and
0: uh, to spread the word when When we take a look at this, like uh, it's the seventh year of gifts for hope um yeah. you, you're sort of the the driving force behind us. um It must be gratifying to see it going as strongly as it is so many years after you created it.
4: It is you know, we certainly weren't expecting this. We were thinking, okay, let's just do a fundraiser, but then we were we found out how much people needed to know this information about domestic violence and how little people did know. And so we were very motivated and passionate about, uh, let's do it again. Let's do it again. Mm -hmm. And as the years progressed, uh, we just felt it got better and better. And, uh, you know, there's nothing like success to engender
0: more success. When you started, when you sort of brought this into uh, conception, were you anticipating seven years later it would grow into what it is? I mean, has it exceeded your expectations?
4: Oh yes, absolutely. We uh, we had no idea where this was going to go, um, but just I'm very gratified that people have been supportive, and uh, it's been wonderful working with ACWS hand-in-hand to um, just to keep the momentum going.
0: Um, Christy, when we talk about this year, what can people expect, and how can they get involved, I think is the important question, because there is a virtual component here, right?
3: Yeah, well, we are. Uh, we've decided to go ahead virtually this year, um, and I know we know that people are a bit zoomed out. But the positive of having an online event is is it, is it, it allows us to bring in amazing people like Samra to share mm. their stories. So people can go to the ACWS website or our Facebook page. There's links there to buy a ticket, come attend the the virtual event, and they can also if they can't make the event, they can also a raffle ticket separately. There's links to do that. And the third thing is if they can't do any of those things, there's other opportunities to engage with ACWS over Family Violence Prevention Month and they can also donate to us at any time.
0: And uh, when is the event and what's the best way to go about getting, uh, I guess we call it tickets, is that what we call it in this day and age where it's all virtual? It's still tickets, right? Yes, I'll I'll actually get Rachel to reply to you on that one. Sure, okay, Rachel.
4: Hi. Yeah, uh, the event so is November fourth in the evening, and um, we ha- ACWS does have the invite with a link to be able to register. Uh, you know, they have uh, the ability to donate okay. online. As well, and if they want to, if people want to buy raffle tickets, and we've got two fabulous prizes. Um, it's uh, two uh, uh, Oilers tickets combined with two night stay at the Chateau Lacombe, uh, that's the first prize. And the second prize is a two-night stay at a lovely townhouse in El Soyuz that um, fronts the lake, um, wow. plus gift certificates for dinner. So those are the two raffle prizes. And people can just go to rafflebox.ca um, and type in Gifts of Hope and uh, they can access the raffle tickets
0: there. Just that easy. Um, Ladies, thank you all for your time this morning, and I wish you best of luck next week with um, the event, and I'm sure it's going to be great. You'll hear from Samra and uh, help out a great cause. So thank you so much for your time today. Thank Thank you. you. Thanks, guys. That is uh, Rachel Rogers, Christy Levan, and Samra Zafar, who are all involved in... um, this event that's taking place on November 4th, as you heard, Gifts of Hope in support of the Alberta Council of Women's Shelters. The easiest way, if you want all the information, just go to um, acws.ca and uh, you can find all of the information there. I'm sure you've seen the stories. We've talked about it here on the air, about how uh, this is going to be a really interesting event. Um, Holiday shopping season, Christmas shopping season, as uh, supply chains are just, well, they're not working. You know, if you take a look at it, uh, everything from vehicles to tires to toys to you name it, um, there's, it's pretty amazing. If, if you take a look at, uh, and you can check it out online, the number of container ships that are just sort of circling in the port of Los Angeles waiting for an opportunity to offload. Shipping is just a disaster right now, and it's really causing a lot of problems, and it's going to make a big mess as we get into this you know, busy time of season. You know, retailers just can't get the products that they want to sell. Uh, It's costing so much more to get products shipped. So bottom line, uh, it's going to be getting more expensive. We've done stories on inflation, right? You know, you look at the price of gas, natural gas, um, everything, food, the cost of living is going up. And, um, you know, you add that into what we've seen over the last Let's call it two years now. We're almost at two years, if you can believe it, of this pandemic. And it's been unsettling. It's been upending. It's changed a lot of things for a lot of people, including the financial situation for a whole lot of people. Um, Now, baby boomers, those who are retired and close to retirement are reporting. They're feeling a lot of anxiety as a result of the way things have changed and the position that it's put them in. So let's get some insight on what's going on with that demographic. We'll chat with Dr. Bonnie Jean McDonald. Who is the director of financial security research at the National Institute of Aging at Ryerson University, Dr. McDonald? Thank you so much for your time this morning. I appreciate you joining us.
5: Good morning, Shay. Happy to be here.
0: Yeah, taking a look at some of your findings and some of the work that you're basing this off. Uh, the numbers are pretty clear cut here, right? Majority feeling a lot of stress about where they are in life right now.
5: Absolutely. So I think, as you were saying, all Canadians really are feeling. Some A lot of financial stress, of course, that, that varies a lot depending on who you are and where you are. But the people going to retirement are, are definitely a very special case because going to retirement, you kind of have your savings and then you're basically being made to kind of decide 10, 20, 30, 40 years into the future. And um, with the turmoil in the financial markets on top of the fact that, you know, this past year has been a huge wake-up call into the systematic problems that have long existed in the long-term care setting, these are just some of the reasons that people going into retirement, like the baby boomers, it's really um, kind of, you know, adding f- fuel to the fire in terms of financial anxiety.
0: Um and as I was talking about it, you know, it's not surprising, right? There's so many things going on right now. It's not only the position they were in prior to the pandemic and how that's been affected, but I mean, just the cost of living has, has changed so dramatically in the last year. We're seeing inflation we haven't seen in a very long time. So that's another added pressure in terms of, you know, your savings. There's everything, it's almost a perfect storm.
5: It's, it's, that's the word that, that took it out of my mouth. It's a perfect storm. I mean, before this started, baby boomers were already at a perfect yeah. storm when it came to retirement probably not so knowingly most of the time. And that's because we've seen a decline in pension plans in the workplace. Interest rates have been low for quite a while. And what that means is people will have generally less money in retirement at the end. But while money's going down, the price tag of retirement has been going up. And that's because people are living longer than ever before. But the biggest one that kind of really doesn't get very much attention is the fact that uh, in Canada, traditionally and around the world, People, as they get older, when they have health care needs, it's actually their family who's been providing Mm -hmm. all the care. And even up till today, we find about 75% of all the care that's done for Canadian elderly in their home is done by the family. So we're in a really um, pivotal, historical time because baby boomers were the first generation to really not have children. So they're going to, it's going to be very questionable about what's exactly going to happen because The care support for seniors in the home just doesn't exist. And if the family's not there, isn't able to provide the care because they just don't have the numbers, uh, this is also another stress that's really creating this perfect storm.
0: Yeah, because when you talk about that, you know, how you're going to live and where you're going to live in your retirement, and if if you do need that added care, it's not cheap. It really does change um, the entire equation when it comes to your retirement years, doesn't it?
5: Yeah, and I, I don't want to, I, I need to put this in there, but it's kind of one of these areas of domestic duties that has historically always fallen on women, and therefore people don't quite appreciate the value of it. Same thing for childcare, uh, caring for the elderly. It's kind of a female's domain, and it's not been given the appreciation that it probably should have been given. And because of that, it's really quite alarming how much it should cost if you were to pay a, a professional and not have. You know, someone in your family, which is usually done by a woman, do that care uh, for free, basically. So it it is going to cost a lot of money. People will have to start paying out of pocket. And the really tricky part of of paying out of pocket is that these care needs won't usually come in the 60s and 70s. Mm -hmm. It's usually going to be in your 80s and your 90s. So people actually have to be planning 20, 30 years in advance and understanding how am I going to have that secure income stream to pay for these services when I may need them, but I may not need them? So this, this is kind of what we would call an, I'm an actuary. It's an impossible task. You cannot it is. plan for this type of risk. It's just not something people can do. So it is quite a,
0: quite a challenge. And when you talk about planning and you know saving and putting yourself in a position where you know you plan for the worst and hope for the best um when you're talking about rising cost of living now if you're somebody who hasn't retired yet uh, but you're getting close, your ability to save gets compromised just because it costs you more to live day to day life right
5: absolutely so you know the other challenge that's in your face is that we you know we live our lives um, humans are very adaptable in general so basically if there's my husband lost, you know, he, my husband's a dentist, for example. He couldn't work for nine months. Well, that meant I worked more. Yeah. Or he puts in more hours. after. Like, this is what we do. We have this kind of human capital where we can take loans. We can do lots of things to really kind of, you know, um, drive through the bad times. But once you get in retirement, this kind of option to work more disappears. And therefore, people aren't adaptable. So this is why the planning piece is just so important. And you've mentioned the rising cost. Now, if somebody's getting... Even if the lucky ones who are getting a pension from their employer, um, oftentimes those pension incomes, they don't go up with inflation. Right. And therefore, you know, inflation goes up 5%. Well, now your purchasing power just went down 5% essentially. Um, the exception to that, of course, is the old age security, which is given by um, the federal government, the social service, as well as your Canada pension plan or the Quebec pension plan, which people contributed to towards the, throughout their whole life. Uh, that also goes up with inflation. So these are kind of two programs that people, you know, they appreciate them, but once you're in your 70s and your 80s and you see those incomes going up with the cost of living, they become very,
0: very important to people. When we take a look at the government programs, we know they're there, and they're there to make sure that um, our seniors are taken care of, but really um, that, that that's not going to provide you, when we're talking about, you know, added care and things like that, you don't want to be in a position where that's your only source of income, Right.
5: Exactly. So uh, there, there's exactly. So people have been, you know, if there's one theme in retirement world, it's been that people should save more, uh, whether mm-hmm. that's in their RSps, uh, whether it's in their employer DC plans, whatever it may be. So save, save, save. Uh, we're now in this critical junction where we have people kind of arriving in retirement, but there is not good methods in Canada to actually take that savings and ter- turn into an income stream, an unaffordable one is what we'd say. So the ways that I personally have been really um, promoting, because I fundamentally believe and I've studied for a number of years, is that Canadians really need to be more aware of the fact that they can delay their Canada pension plan. And what they're doing by, so if you have a little bit of savings, use that money to bridge the short term, so from age 60 to 70. And if you can delay your CPP to age 70, what you've done is you've just purchased the cheapest, most um, high-quality D-Plan in the world. Okay. And you basically double your, more than double your CPP. And what I found is if you look at the average Canadian by doing that over their lifetime, they'll make about $100,000 extra in retirement income on average. And for those who actually live beyond the average age, those are the ones who will very greatly appreciate this extra income as they go into their 80s and 90s.
0: So is there a cut off? Like, if you can push it to 70, is that good? Then you can feel okay? Or do you benefit even more if you push it out to 72 or 75?
5: No, that's a great... So you can take it as early as age 60, and really, unfortunately, that's been the most popular take-up age, because Mm -hmm. people see the CPP, like other government programs, oh, great, I'm eligible, I should grab it before it disappears. That's not the way the program works. It's actually a funded pension plan. So you know, there's kind of a a little bit of a tightrope the government walks because they don't want to be seen as giving financial advice. Right. But at the same time, uh, there's conflicts of interest in the industry. So people are being told, take your CPP early, uh, and that leaves more money invested with the various financial products in the private sector. So, you know, this is why for someone like myself, who I don't have kind of – you know, I, I really am about social good and research to really be out there explaining this because people don't understand it. And it's so bad, Shay, that um, if you look at the numbers, of per, 95% of ninety five of Canadians take their CPP by age 65. So only 1% of Canadians are actually making the most of it by taking it at age 70. So you can only delay the age 70, and by that time, you've basically more than doubled the the. Uh,
0: monthly payment income streams, wow, I had no idea i didn 't even know that was a thing
5: I know and and isn 't that a shame because we know about everything out there, and i the most valuable thing you could do is this, and just to kind of give another example, if instead the so delay from sixty five to seventy you can either you know take the money now and not delay it or say if you instead took those five years of income. And went and bought an annuity in the, in the retail market, mm-hmm. so people will say, oh, buy annuities, they're great. Well, it would actually buy you half the income it, that you could get by delaying your CPP.
0: Wow. That's how good it is. Yeah. And, it, you know, when, when you talk about people living longer, doesn't that also mean that people are working longer? So maybe that's 65. Um, you know, now people wor- want to work till 70. I know. I hope I can. I mean, <laughs> yes, is, me it, is, is that retirement age changing along with life expectancy?
5: It is. So the average retirement age, it went down quite a bit. It went down uh, over a couple decades to about 60. And then just over the last, um, I don't know exactly the number, but less than a decade, it's actually gone back to age 65. So for sure, we see people retiring at a later age. Um, nevertheless, people retire for a lot of reasons. Yeah. Some is that if, because they can Um, Other people, a lot of people do because they have to. And those could be reasons like they're out of a job, which we may see more of now, although there is such a high demand in labor markets, maybe not. Uh, The other reason why people need to retire is because of their health or because the health of their spouse. They need to stay home. It just doesn't make sense for them to keep working. So, you know, because of that, it's not always something within our control, but definitely working longer is going to be a strategy that people will use to just help to have a more comfortable retirement
0: yeah, makes perfect sense. Great information this morning, Doctor. Thank you so much for your time.
5: My pleasure, Shay. Have a great day.
0: Yeah, you too. That is Dr. Bonnie Jean McDonald, Director of Financial Security Research at the National Institute of Aging at Ryerson University. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.